This is Polar Voices. I'm Kelsey Gabrowski. It's autumn in Nunavut. August through September is the warmest time of year in Kikatarjuak, a small island community off the coast of Baffin Island. Icebergs float around. Remnant sea ice serves as a reminder of coming winter. Ben Misyuk slips into the water. The, the core of your body stays pretty warm in, in the dry suit. Nothing gets wet or anything that's uh, kind of in in your suit. So the only things that are getting wet are your hands and your head. So your whole body's relatively warm. Uh, your face is the only thing that's directly touching the water, so that tends to get cold, obviously, immediately. Uh, but your mind kind of gets taken off that pretty quickly once your hands start to get cold. <laughs> the community is interested in the commercial value of diving for clams in summer and winter, as a small market has already popped up in town. And he says they're looking to expand. But before clams can be sold commercially, their population must be better understood. That's where he comes in. Kind of the results we've got are, are based on uh, habitats in the area and which different ones exist in different areas. They use sonar to map the areas of interest around the community, then dive downward and see what lives and uses each different habitat. For example, there aren't many clams in deeper, rockier areas, but muddy sea floors have a lot of activity. Aware of the community's interests in starting a clam industry, the Nunavut government contact Misiuk's supervisor. His data will push the authorization process forward. I'm sure the community will find it interesting. They've definitely been asking us a lot about uh, what we're doing and where the research is going, and we, we explain it to them, and they you know, seem interested to see the final product. Misiuk says without community involvement, they wouldn't have been able to get this far in the project, which has now been plugging away for three years. One of the guys that we work with you know, every day, he's, he's hired as a boatman, uh, but he's also a field assistant, so he helps us with uh, kind of the, the science that goes on on the boat. Um, he's kind of the, the all-around go-to guy. He's, you know, he he kind of tends for us while we're diving. Uh, he's a, a bear monitor. He, um, uh, he helps us kind of relate to some of the other members of the community that maybe don't speak English. Uh, so he's kind of all around a really key member of our team. Community-driven research is laying the groundwork for local change in the Arctic. Though projects in single communities may seem minor compared to the international discussion about polar regions, they are part of a larger effort toward determining how traditional lands and ways of life are studied. These collaborations transfer resources to those on the front lines of climate change. Bob Van Dyken, Yukon First Nations Acting Director of Circumpolar Relations, explains. In some cases where people were seeing animals for millennia and were used to, to hunting or fishing, those patterns are changing as some of the species change. And uh, this may cause um, a series of effects and, and people are having to reevaluate or, or not harvest anymore. That's leading to proactive responses from some communities. Uh, there was a very successful program that Health Canada introduced uh, that funded communities and First Nations to look at climate change adaptation and health. Uh, a number of the First Nations uh, had programs, for example, youth and elders on the land. Um, 
looking at some of the municipal plants. Elders describe going back to where they grew up and describing to youth the changes that they have seen over their lifetimes. This response on the community level leads to an indicator that's being watched internationally, known as resilience. Marcus Carson is a researcher at the Stockholm Environmental Institute. We're especially interested in the in the analysis that includes us, people in the system. He explains resilience as a two-part concept. It's both about this capacity of ecosystems to, to persist and the capacity of human communities at whatever scale to, to consciously choose their path into a future that, that is not really predictable. Carson leads an effort to capture a snapshot of that resilience in the north, known as the Arctic Resilience Assessment. And in fact, for the Arctic Resilience Assessment, we've analyzed case studies of 25 different communities across the Arctic. The project is led by the Arctic Council. The Stockholm Environmental Institute is based out of Sweden, which co-chairs the project with the U.S. The communities they follow are often able to adapt their needs to a different resource, from hunting to fishing, for example but sometimes people are forced to move away from their home community. Another extremely interesting development, though, is where a community sees that what it's doing doesn't work in the context in which, they're, in which they live anymore, and they find their way to something very different, a transformational change, but where they keep who they are. They remain, they remain essentially who they are, uh, even while changing important things. In Nunavut, a generational transformation is happening, as 60% of the population is less than 20 years old. Pond Inlet is about 500 miles north of Kikatarjuak. Shelley Elverum offers guidance to youth in the community. The majority of people that will be the most affected are not the older generations that are typically involved in the decision-making, but the younger ones that aren't. Elvarum established a Carvic to get young Inuit involved in science and research. Research provides a means for that young generation to bridge the traditional knowledge and the views and the, the values of their communities with some of this science and technology that helps them to answer the questions that are being posed by all this change. Natasha Simony of Pond Inlet traveled with Elvarum to Arctic Science Summit Week. 2016 in Fairbanks, Alaska. A lot of the work Ikarvik does is to engage and train youth in our communities so that they can be our our bridging point from our elders to the community through youth into the Western world of science. So rather than just responding to research as, as a passive sort of object of, of science and research is to actually enable the communities to, to state, these are our research priorities. And if you want to come in and partner with us and help us to answer our questions, you're welcome to come in and help us build that capacity. In other words? Relaying the message that we do want to be involved and we are totally capable we just need to be given the chance. For example, Simony says one Akarvik student monitors sea ice. Another keeps an eye out for effects of nearby resource development. Two sensitive topics in the community. If we can amp up the quality of data by working together, why not? 
Simony says Akarvik has gotten young people eager and motivated to run their results past elders and refine their findings. Now she, and fellow Pond Inlet residents, are looking for what's next for their generation. I feel like I can make a valid prediction and say, like, the fire's been ignited. It hasn't started burning yet, but I see that the community is going to really take its own position. To hear more about collaborations between Arctic communities and scientists, visit the Polar Voices page at thepolarhub.org. Polar Voices is produced by the UA Museum of the North in collaboration with the Arctic Institute of North America as part of the Polar Learning and Responding Climate Change Education Partnership. 